0: Well, good morning. Come and behold Him. That's the goal. That's the goal of worship, to glorify Him by beholding Him. And once you've beheld Him, everything else falls into place. It's just a mop-up operation after that. Adam, thank you, the choir, orchestra, for leading us in worship that we might glorify our triune God in beholding Him. Preparing us to behold him uh, through the preaching of his word this morning. Just a reminder, we will have the Lord's Supper tonight. We're going to devote most of the service to that. We're going to sing a lot. Uh, We're going to hear a short message on the gospel. And then we're going to partake of the table. So please plan to be out uh, for that tonight. It's a real vital what the reformers called the ordinary means of grace for our growth and salvation. If you look with me in John chapter 1, we're in looking at verses 43. We're going to finish out the chapter, verse 51 today. And John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, we have been summoned this morning to come and behold You in the face of your Son and by your Spirit, and we're asking that we might do that today for your glory and our growth in godliness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Walter Hendrickson, uh, in his book on discipleship, tells of a a colleague that worked with him in the Navigators ministry. And at one time, this colleague uh, worked for a banana company outside of his hometown in Jamaica. And he was doing so well in this banana company that one of the executives came and invited him into his office and he said, look, you have a lot of promise, a lot of potential, and and we we really want to see you move through the ranks uh, because of uh, the work you have already demonstrated. You have a great future, but we need a full-on commitment. We need... You to give your life in exchange for bananas. Well, the young man considered that for a moment. And he decided he could not sign away his life for bananas. Well, there's nothing wrong with selling bananas. In fact, there's something very right about being good at your job. It does not glorify God when Christians are not excellent... At their jobs. But to give your life away, in this case for bananas, would be a foolish move. You'd have to be bananas, really, to do that. <laughs> and so this was a wise move on this young man's part to walk away from this company. But the, the fact is, every one of us, Give our lives away to something or someone. Over the last two days, I've been to two funerals. I went to my Uncle Jimmy's funeral on a third, a Friday, and I went to my Uncle Stan's mother's funeral yesterday. One was age 85, and one was age 91 when they died. And both of them gave their lives away to something, Okay, And John is showing us here that when we rightly behold him, behold the Lamb of God, we will give our lives away for him and follow him. Now, at this point in the narrative, there have been three that have taken up the summons. Uh, We saw last week that Andrew was the first one And he responded to John the Baptist's message to behold the Lamb, and he beheld the Lamb. And we also saw that John the Evangelist, the one who's writing this gospel, was also one there who who followed the Lamb. And then we saw the first evangelist was Andrew, and he took that gospel uh, to his brother Peter, who in turn followed Jesus. That was the third day of this first week that John is depicting in Jesus' ministry. Now we've come to the fourth day of the first week of Jesus' ministry that is laid out by John the Evangelist. And, And what we're going to see here in the first few verses is that this Jesus, this Lamb, is the hope of the ages. Therefore, we... Should follow him. In other words, when we see this summons to follow Jesus, this isn't just giving us a historical description to scratch our our historical itch. It is a summons to us all. Just as he calls these first disciples to follow him, he is calling you, he is calling me to follow him. Now, look with me in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go. To Galilee. Now he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So again, the first two followers of Jesus were Andrew and, and John, and they came to him because of preaching. In particular, John the Baptist was preaching the Lamb of God, and they responded to a sermon. And then Peter was encouraged to follow Jesus because of a one-on-one evangelistic encounter with his brother. And I would submit that is largely the primary way people come to Christ, is through one-on-one evangelistic encounters. But now we see Jesus himself taking the initiative here. And literally what he says is... Keep on following me. It's not just a one time commitment. When one is born again, when one is truly converted, they're changed forever. And so, one of the evidences that we've truly been converted, truly been born again, is that now becomes the hallmark of your life. It's not to say that you won't fall into patterns sometimes of things you need to deal with and repent of, but as a, as a hallmark of your life, as a, a A total description of your life, you are one who follows Jesus. And literally, that's what he says here. Keep on following me. And and what a glorious display of that declaration in Luke's gospel when Jesus said in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. We see it here. And if you're a believer here today, most of you are. Most of you are believers. Most of you have been born again. You have repented of your sin. You have trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation. If you are a believer here, it's because Jesus sought you. It's because of God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ that you are here and you follow Christ. Your response should be be grateful and be devoted. Be grateful and be devoted. Walk in the grace that you have received in Jesus by his spirit. But many of us are here as well who have loved ones or perhaps family members who aren't yet Christians. Remember, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. So be encouraged. Be encouraged, but be diligent. Be diligent. And this is a word for us all. Now, the Lord can save people the first time they hear the gospel. He has, he does, and he will. The first time a person hears the gospel, and it's remarkable, even on this Auburn campus, there are people who've never heard the name of Jesus. It's astounding if you think about it. And he can save people the first time they hear the gospel. But I agree with Herman Bovink, one of my favorite scholars, um, who says that almost no conversion happens without some kind of prior external or internal preparatory events. And so externally, uh, this person may have received a heavy blow. That is a very difficult circumstance arises. and and that person has been devastated by life in a fallen world, the heavy blows of life, or perhaps, conversely, that person has experienced some kind of rich blessing in his or her life, and and that person recognizes this this must be the hand of God. Or perhaps, that person providentially came under uh, uh, the hearing of of a... Particular sermon that was used providentially, and in, in his life, or a one-on-one encounter with a with a Christian. But there was an external kind of preparation. There's also these internal preparations. Sinners who have come to the end of themselves. They they have they have tried to live life without God. They have tried to live life without a Savior, and it's ended in chaos. And so they've been brought to the end of themselves just as the prodigal son was. And so they begin to experience this internal misery. They, they perhaps develop a fear of, of judgment, of punishment. And they begin to start searching the truth, for truth in the Scriptures and, and perhaps from friends who, who, who know the Scriptures. And, and they long for deliverance. But God has already been at work externally and internally. That's why we need to be ready evangelists because we, we must assume that people in a fallen world have experienced and are experiencing difficulties. We must assume unless their consciences have been bound or, or seared that, that they are in some way broken over their sin or their behavior. Well, I think what we see here is a man... Uh, in Philip, uh, who has been prepared. And I believe he's been prepared in a Christian home. Uh, Not in a Christian home, an, an old covenant believing home. But the reason I believe that is because this man is aware that the scriptures speak about one who will come, who is the Messiah. We see that in verse 44. But it's also clear that Philip did not respond immediately to the preaching of the gospel. It's very likely that he heard John the Baptist preach. It's very likely that he heard John the Baptist preach when Andrew and John heard John the Baptist preach, but he did not respond immediately. Um, But here we see him being called directly by Jesus himself. But again, it's not divorced from the word of God. God has diverse ways in saving sinners. Now, no salvation comes apart from explicit gospel proclamation. There is no one saved apart from the gospel. Not a a single person in the history of the world has ever been saved apart from the gospel. Paul says in Romans, how will they believe if they've not heard and how will they hear if we are not sent? Um, but he had been prepared, and, and Jesus comes to him, and he encounters Jesus through the Word of God, and he's converted. Uh, others are converted through preaching. Andrew and, and John were converted through preaching. Peter was converted through one-on-one evangelism. I was converted, many of you know, at a Christian concert. I was converted during the singing of a song. I had a student uh, who was addicted to drugs, a student in Louisville. And high on drugs, he went into a bookstore and stole a Bible. And in time, took that stolen Bible and began to read it and was converted by that stolen Bible. I asked him later, did you return that stolen Bible? He said, well, first of all, I marked it up. And two, that bookstore had gone out of business. And I said, because of people like you. <laughs> in Louisville, we worked with a, a church plant in Toronto, Canada, planted by the North American Mission Board. And there was a, a, a pastor there at this church plant named Kasevan. And I was asking Kasevan to share his testimony. Kasevan had been in prison for nine years in Canada. He had been a part of a street gang, and in a particular street gang fight, a man was murdered, and even though Kasevon was not the one who did that, he went to prison for nine years. And while in prison, a Gideon, and we praise God for the Gideons, we have some here at Lakeview, a Gideon brought a Bible to him, and Kasevon read that Bible, and like my student, was converted by the reading of Scripture in prison. Set free, and, and then he ended up being a church planner with the North American Mission Board. Well, here, and it's likely that Kasavan had not had any background at that point in, in the Christian faith. Here, Philip is clearly well-versed in the Old Testament. Now, the Jews don't, didn't call it the Old Testament, nor do they call it the Old Testament today. They call it the Tanakh. T-N-K, the Torah, the Nevim, the Ketuvim the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. But it's our Old Testament. And he was well-versed in the Old Testament, and in particular, he was well-versed in reading it through the messianic lens. He was well-versed in reading the Old Testament and seeing the Old Testament as preparing the way For a coming Messiah. That's how they were saved under the Old Covenant. They weren't saved by keeping the law. No one can keep the law. They were saved by looking forward to the Messiah. And and I believe that's Philip's testimony as well. And upon hearing the message from the Messiah, Behold the Lamb, follow me. He followed his Savior. And I believe John the evangelist would agree that today that summons still stands. For those of you who have not trusted in the Lamb, King Jesus, exalted at the right hand of the Father, is saying to you, by his word and through the Holy Spirit, follow him. That is the summons. Now notice with me in verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, after Jerusalem and Capernaum, Bethsaida is the most frequently mentioned city in the Gospels. So, Jerusalem, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. And it would be where three of the 12 disciples would be from, where they would be born. And and this reminds us that God has a people everywhere because later Jesus is going to condemn a pronounced woe on this city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works that had been done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment. Bethsaida as a whole was a wicked city. And yet here we have three of the original 12 disciples who are from this wicked city. God has a people everywhere. Needs to be mindful of that. We need to be mindful of that as his evangelists. Now look with me in verse um, 45. Philip found Nathanael. And so it doesn't say that Philip responded to the summons, follow me. But it's assumed because now he becomes an evangelist. (laughs) One of the marks of a believer is now he wants others to know the Savior that he or she knows. And so he says, it says that he found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law. And also the prophets wrote. See, so he's been, he's been anticipating Messiah by reading his Old Testament. Jesus of Nazareth, son of God. And so uh, Andrew's first recorded act after being converted to Jesus was to go tell his brother. And now here we see Philip's first act is to find Nathaniel, who, by the way, uh, his other name is Bartholomew. Uh, In the other Gospels, he goes by the name Bartholomew. It's the same person. Don't be confused there. And he proclaimed to him, we have found the one in whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Philip appears here to have already had an old covenant faith, looking forward to the Messiah who would come. Uh, And Again, because he believed... The Old Testament was fundamentally about Redeemer sending. Indeed, later in John chapter 5, we'll get to there, uh, in, in due time, Jesus said to the Pharisees, they believed Moses. If they believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Jesus himself says Moses wrote about him. Indeed, the entire Old Testament prepares us for the Messiah. That's why we have to read the the Old Testament the same way Philip read the Old Testament, the same way Jesus read the Old Testament. Just consider a few ways they would have looked to the Son of God from the Old Testament. First of all, um, there were the many prophecies. Uh, the first prophecy being Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, you have that prophecy in Genesis 49, where, where Judah is told by his father Jacob, being blessed, he says, through the, your seed, through your family, the Messiah is going to come, and the scepter will not depart from your house until you have the obedience of the peoples. And then you got those remarkable prophecies of the, the suffering servant Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, the anointed one who would come, Isaiah 61. These were prophecies of the one who would come. And then there were pictures. Some people call them types. And and these pictures prepared us for the Messiah. The prophets, the priests, and the kings were all pictures of the great prophet, priest, and king who would come. It is dry up here. When Moses led his people out of slavery, that was a picture of the greater Moses who would come and lead his people out of the bondage of sin, These are all pictures and types as Joseph sits at the right hand of Pharaoh and he mediates bread to the nations and to Israel who are under the curse of famine and through that brings salvation to the world. That is a picture of the Messiah who would come. Then there's the presence of God. These manifestations of God, which some call theophanies or Christophanies, pre-incarnate manifestations of the Son of God. Exodus 3, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and that very angel says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or how about when... You have Manoah, who is Samson's father. And the angel of the Lord appears to him in Judges 13. And he says, I have seen God. That's the presence of God that prepares us for the the Son of God to come. And then there's the providence of God. The entire Old Testament is to be read as one story with a trajectory set on the Son of God. Paul says the mystery revealed is that God is going to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. And so the entire Old Testament story is preparing us for Christ the Savior. How about the precepts of God, Um, the laws of God? These laws were never intended to save God's people. It was intended to show them how broken and how sin-stained they really are and how they need one who will come and fulfill the law and one who will die on the cross for our having broken the law. Then there's problems. That's another way the Old Testament prepares us for the Messiah by problems. So, for instance, in the book of Judges, it says that they did not have a king. So they did that which was right in their own eyes. And so you see this sin cycle. They sin, and then they experience sorrow, and then they make supplication, and then they cry out to God in supplication, and God provides a a judge, a, a savior, if you will. But it's a recurring cycle because they need an ultimate king. And so the Old Testament gives us problems that can only be fixed by the Messiah. And then there's the promises. The promises of new heavens and new earth, the promise of resurrection, the promise that, that the nations would be blessed through the seed of, of Abraham. Uh, you have the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All of these promises, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And then there's places. Think about the Garden of Eden. God walked with Adam in the garden. I believe that is a Christophany, the Son of God. Um, you have the holy of holies where God made, manifested his presence. He revealed himself to his people through the priest. It's where atonement was made. And what did John tell us? The lamb of God is the one who came and tabernacled among us and we beheld the glory of God. And so there are places like, um, that we see in the Old Testament preparing us for Messiah. And this was the way That Moses and the true believing Jews read their Old Testament. They were reading their Old Testament. And as history progresses, as Revelation progresses, they were coming to understand more and more of the Messiah who would come and their need for that Messiah. But before we see Nathaniel's response to uh, Philip here, I want you to notice, and this is important to understanding the narrative, how Philip describes um, Jesus. He says, he is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, is there an error here? No. Jesus, there's some truth to what he says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but after his family made their excursion to Egypt and they came back to the land, they lived in Nazareth. So he grew up in Nazareth. So there is some truth to that. But notice as well, he is the son of Joseph. Now, there's some truth to that. Joseph adopted him. Joseph adopted him. But here, uh, people knew him only as the son of Joseph. Even though he had been conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And he had existed with God from all eternity. And of course, Philip at this point would not have known about the virgin conception. Even though Isaiah 7 prophesied it. But note Nathaniel's skepticism in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, what is going on there? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, Nazareth was a rough place. In fact, in Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke chapter 4, it was in Nazareth, his hometown. And by the time he's done with the sermon, they want to throw him over a cliff. They tried to throw him over a cliff. That happened in Nazareth. In Mark 6, that's where Jesus declared, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He was referring to Nazareth. So the pagans were really pagan in Nazareth. And I think Nathaniel's thinking, can anything good, especially Messiah, come from a place like that? But again, these early disciples appear to be Bible-reading young men. And he understood that the Messiah was to be born from, in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. And he's hearing this Messiah is from Nazareth. What he didn't realize was that Jesus had moved to Nazareth at a young, as a young boy. So he was partially correct. Well, notice in the second part of verse 46, in response to that question, Philip said to him, come and see. Adam, I love the fact that we sang that song, Come and Behold Him. Because Philip understands that important truth. I don't have to argue with you about Jesus. Come and see. Once you've beheld Him, you will know. And that is my prayer for every unbeliever here today. Come and see. Come and behold Him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now what is he referring to here? Jesus is referring to the original Israelite whose name was Israel. But whose first name was Jacob, the hill snatcher who was known for his deceit. Maybe your translation reads guile. He was known for his deceptive ways. But before his change, his conversion, um, he was known best for cheating his brother Esau, his twin, out of his birthright, his, his inheritance. In fact, there's this interesting encounter in Genesis 27 where this same word is used, that Jesus uses... When Isaac the father says to Esau, your brother came deceitfully, same word, and has taken away your blessing. He came deceitfully. And so Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and I believe, virtually every scholar believes, that Jesus is picking up on that narrative. And he says, Nathanael, you're not like Jacob. Uh, you, your heart is not filled with guile. I believe Nathaniel, like Philip, uh, had been prepared by the Old Testament and, in particular, their reading of the Old Testament, longing for Messiah. You know, people who reject Jesus today don't reject him because of lack of evidence there is no lack of evidence, is because they don't want him lording over their moral life. They love their sin too much to die to it and to be delivered from it. But with Nathaniel here, it's as if Jesus is saying, here is an Israelite without a trace of Jacob in him, unlike the Pharisees of the day who did not see their need for a Savior because they had polished up self-righteousness. But that wasn't Nathaniel. And note verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What in the world is Jesus saying here? Well, in the Old Testament, to sit under one's fig tree is associated with the enjoyment of the blessing of God under the righteous reign of the Davidic king. Let me give you a couple of examples. 1 Kings 4.25 Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, even to Beersheba, from the top, very very northern part of Israel to the very southern part, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. What that's communicating is that they are receiving the blessings of God mediated through this Davidic king, Solomon. Of course, an exile occurred. God brought judgment. They went into uh, Babylon and the Davidic kingship was destroyed. There was no king. But the believing Jews knew God was faithful to his promises. And they knew that in spite of what they saw, in spite of what they were experiencing in Babylon, God was going to one day raise up the branch of David, a shoot from the stump of David. Of Jesse and that's what Micah prophesies when he he writes that when Messiah comes chapter 4 verse 4 they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree he's going to restore Zechariah in the same way writes in that day every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree In other words, the believing Jews, after the exile, would sit under the fig tree, symbolically longing for the day when Messiah would come. And tradition tells us they would have their Tanakh, their Old Testament Bibles open, meditating on the law, waiting for Messiah as they sat under the fig tree. I believe that's exactly what Nathaniel was doing. I believe he had his Bible open. And I can't prove this. This is just speculation. I believe he was reading Genesis 28. About Jacob. When Jesus confronts him. And says. An Israelite without guile. Unlike the man you just read about. And that's. I believe explains. Nathaniel's response. Nathanael answered him. Rabbi basically, how did you know that? Oh, I know. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He is in awe. Remember, the summons from Philip was, come and see. Nathaniel has come and he has seen. He has beheld the son of God. And that response was You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Well, notice in verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now, I want you to note the order here. Believing and then seeing. Um, it's been said that seeing is believing, and there's some truth to that. Before you would ever bow the knee to Jesus, you have to come to grips with your brokenness and your sin and your rebellion and how it's destroying you and it's destroying every person around you, the people you love most. Before you come to Jesus, you have to see that. You have to see him as the only savior. You have to see him as the only deliverer. You have to see him as the only one who has come and died on a cross taking the judgment of God for sin and then was raised bodily from the grave. You have to see that. And so oftentimes you see that seeing is believing. But there's another sense in which we As we grow in our believing, we see more. As we grow in our faith, we behold more. Uh, Yesterday, my dad, fresh off of cataract surgery, told me I didn't know I was blind until I had cataract surgery. Now he has 2015 vision. He, He came up here a few months ago, And he didn't know he was blind, so he drove home blind. And uh, he made a two-hour trip into a four-hour trip. He said, I couldn't see roads. I couldn't see signs. I said, how come you didn't know you were blind? He says, because it comes on you gradually. It's so gradual that you're blind and you don't even know you're blind. Well, conversely, the same truth applies. Um, Our spiritual sight gradually grows as our faith grows. As our faith is strengthened in the gospel, as our faith is strengthened in our triune God, in his person, his promises, and his providence, we behold more and more of the living God. But notice here, he promises these greater revelations of God's glory. What I have just demonstrated to you pales in comparison to what you're going to see. It's what he tells Nathaniel here. And this is going to be seen next week when we get to chapter 2 in the first sign miracle. John calls them signs, not miracles. Because they point beyond themselves to something ultimate. And these sign miracles escalate. The one is remarkable. But it's relatively small to the last sign miracle. And so these sign miracles are going to escalate. And these greater things that he promises Nathanael will be beheld. Consummated by the cross of Jesus where he says the hour of, for the son of man to be glorified is upon us. He says in chapter 12. Well that brings us to the last part of the, uh, the, the passage. It's 12 o'clock. I need to close that brings us to the second point. Jesus is the place where we encounter God. Follow him. And he said to him, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is why I believe Nathanael was reading Genesis 28. First of all, he's already referred to Jacob when he says an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And now here, he's alluding to Genesis 28 again. You know the story. Jacob fled from his brother after he stole the the, uh, birthright. And he ends up in this place that was originally called Luz or Luz. And he's very tired, and he lays down, and you know you're tired when you use a stone as a pillow. And uh, when he went to sleep, he had a dream. It was a vision, a revelatory vision. God is at the top, and there's a ladder. And angels are ascending and descending on that ladder. And God says to Jacob, he says, in spite of your behavior... I am going to bless you with the promises I made to Abraham. And and Jacob's response was, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he names that place Bethel, the house of God. And notice what Jesus is saying here. I am the fulfillment of that. That dream points to me. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I am the ladder. I am the place, the person where you encounter God. This is where God's greater revelation will come. It's in the Son of God. And that's where Nathaniel was converted. And so at the end of the fourth day, there's five converts. There's five converts. Praise God for those five converts because it's going to multiply. It began with them, but here we are, sitting here 2022, 20, Lakeview in Auburn, Alabama, because the five converts multiplied themselves who multiplied themselves and multiplied themselves. And here we are, the products of that. They were converted. Their their lives were changed. But as we're going to see, their faith was puny at first, just like ours. Your faith is not perfected the moment you're converted. And and even though you're changed, you have to grow because you're not perfected. And they're going to be anything but perfect. But in the three years that lay ahead, the three years they spend with Jesus, they're going to grow in their faith monumentally, as they behold the greater things that Jesus promised, as they behold and see God's glory in this Son of Man. And that's why this gospel is first and foremost to every believer here. We're going to make the journey with them. We're not going to take three years, but we're going to make the journey with the disciples. And as they behold God's glory in Jesus we're going to behold God's glory in Jesus. And that's a means of growth. But it's also a word to every unbeliever here. I don't have any particular person in mind, I can assure you. But I'm almost convinced that in virtually any church, on any given Sunday, there are unbelievers. And Bethel is a stark contrast to Babel. In Bethel, God descends to us. In Babel, we seek to ascend and make a name for ourselves. That is our natural state. That is our sin state. We seek to build a stairway to heaven. And God brought judgment on that self-salvation project. He brought judgment. If we are to be saved, if you are to be saved, it's because... God descends to you by way of that ladder. And that ladder is a person, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And in this Son, we have everything we need. And that's why there's no one title that can encapsulate. Let me close here with just a a brief summation of how this passage has described Jesus. We saw in verse 29 and verse 36, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 34, we saw he is the Son of God, which speaks to his deity, yes, but it also speaks to the reality he is the true Son versus Adam. He's the true Son versus Israel. He's the true Son versus Israel's kings. This is the true Son of God who will come as our substitute. Uh, in verse 38 he is our rabbi he's our teacher as we read the scriptures he teaches us by his spirit in verse 41 he is the christ he is the messiah he is the deliverer and in verse 49 he is the king of israel which is a blessing to us because it would be through israel the nations would be blessed right and then in verse 51 He is the Son of Man, which picks up Daniel 7 language where he defeats all the beasts of the world and restores the kingdom back to the Father. John is wooing us. John the evangelist is wooing us. He wants you to see that Jesus is the one you were created for, therefore follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's a summons to us all. And so as Adam uh, and the musicians come forward, we would, as Jesus did, present you an opportunity to follow him. The Bible says you need a Savior. The Bible says that without that Savior, you will be separated from God for all eternity in a horrible place of judgment. And yet in the Savior, we have one who took that hell for sinners like you. He took the judgment so that God could remain true to who he is as holy and righteous and just. And then God raised him, reversing that curse on those who would believe. And so as we stand and as we sing, my call to you is to believe that message and follow Jesus. Thanks for worshiping with us today.